Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Well, welcome, gentlemen. Today, we are talking about what is real and what is our relationship to things that are real. It's been my experience that well-meaning Christians, including myself, tend to underestimate the impact of the chasm between realism and nominalism, if they are even aware of the existence of such a chasm. I think it would be extremely helpful to the listener to pull back the curtain a bit and show the inner workings of such a worldview and make some applications. So that's what we'll be doing in this episode today. Sounds good. Sounds very good. But first, as this is a technical topic, it is even more important than usual that we really get clear on our terms, as I know both of you are so able to do. To have this conversation, a person needs to know what a property is. So let's start there. Well, before we get into all the technicals, let me suggest we start with an example from Scripture that everybody would be familiar with, maybe a few. And that way we can get our head around what it is we're talking about here. Yeah. Because I think these these things you're talking about, properties, are assumed in Scripture. And uh, I think everybody who reads Scripture, sometimes unaware, as they may be, are inferring their existence already. So, for instance, we read a passage of Scripture like John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And we understand that whether that is in English or French or in Mandarin, it's the same truth. It's the same thing being expressed. Uh, Or if if it's something I'm thinking about and you're thinking about John 3.16 also, it's the same thing we're thinking about. What's that thing that is thought about by different people at the same time or is quote-unquote in different texts at the same time? That's a property. It's a type of property called a proposition, but it's something that is not material. And can be in multiple things at the same time, minds, texts, what have you. So, so that's the kind of thing that we, we run into every day. And we run into it with natures too. We talk about Jesus taking on human nature. Well, there's something real there that we have, and we literally, in a deep sense, share with Christ. And that's how he can be our equal and adequate substitute. So these ideas are all through Scripture and I think it's helpful for you to bring them up and say, hey, let's let's talk more about this idea and, and get clear on how they have an impact on how we think and live and flourish in so many ways. So with that as sort of an intro, JP, why don't you do the spade work here and, and give us some definitions? I really like that. About all you can do uh, is to point to examples or use different words, but a property is just an attribute or a characteristic or a quality of something. So I say things like, God is all-loving, he's all-wise, he's omnipotent. And what I'm doing is ascribing certain attributes to God. In fact, there are books where you can study the attributes of God. And so I take it that when you're studying the attributes of God, you're studying something that's real, that really characterizes God. So Uh, I would say that God actually has a whole range of different attributes, and there are attributes that God doesn't have, like he doesn't have the attribute of being round or or being colored red. He's just, he's a spirit. An apple might have the attribute of being red. 
So what we come down to is, as a first attempt here, the world contains individual things. Uh, God is a particular individual thing, a person. There is a specific dog that our neighbor has. I can point to a particular apple or various individual things. But these things that I believe are real also have attributes. I mean, the, the dog has certain attributes that are different from God's, that are different from the apples and, and so on. So we confront a world with what I would just call propertied individual things, individual things that have properties or attributes. And I, I would also want to just say that I happen to hold that they're also relations like larger than. Uh, if you have a podium and a writing pen, the podium is larger than the pen. And that's a real fact. Yet being larger than is not an attribute of the podium. It doesn't have that attribute. It may have the attribute of a certain shape and color. And the pen doesn't have the attribute of being smaller than, let's say. That is instead a relation between the two of them. And so to summarize, we appear to confront a world that has individual things in it. Those individual things seem to have properties or attributes, and they seem to stand in all kinds of relations to other things. And so that would be just an initial implication that it would seem like properties and relations are part of the furniture of the universe. That makes sense. That seems very reasonable to me. There are people who don't hold this understanding. And this is where I start to have trouble because I have a hard time understanding anything that isn't what you just described. I mean, think of it like this, if you don't mind me saying it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet about this. But sometimes properties themselves have properties. Just think of 1 Corinthians 13. What in the world is Paul doing there? I think what he's doing is describing an aspect of reality. Namely, he is actually characterizing the property of being loving or of love mm -hmm. and telling us what attributes that property has. So the property of love has the attribute of being patient, kind, and so on. So when someone has the property of being loving, then that will also include the property of being patient and kind. So that's an example of where it looks to me like Paul is actually giving a description of something he takes to be very real, but it's not a, a real individual thing. It's a real attribute. It's a, it's a different category from coffee cups and things like that, bananas and so on. That's helpful. Stan, do you have anything to add there? Well, yeah, I'll circle back on the question that you're getting to of why is it not commonplace to assume properties exist? The things that JP and I are talking about are by definition not physical. Properties and relations are abstract objects. They're immaterial. And at least since the Enlightenment, the intellectual climate here in the West has been dominated by naturalism, which says if it's not physical, somehow extended in space, it's not real. And so by definition, if you start with that view of what's real and what's not real, 
properties can't exist. And so, uh, so I think that's one of the reasons it's so dominant and in some circles just taken as a matter of fact that, well, if I can't touch it, it can't exist. In fact, in my ministry with professors, uh, I often have the opportunity to, to turn the tables a little bit because though most professors I interact with who aren't believers are naturalists, think all that exists is what is physical, they all assume in their disciplines as foundational to their fields of study, things that are immaterial properties that exist. So I'll just give you an example. I was having a conversation with a, a professor of mathematics at a large state university, and he was explaining to me that uh, if if I could think a little more clearly, I would realize that all that exists is that which is physical. And I realized I was getting nowhere. And I said to him, you know, I'm interested in your your work. What do you study? What 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 is it that as a mathematician you do? And and he said, I study mathematical objects and how they relate to one another. And I uh, I said that that's really that's fascinating. Uh, I I've never touched a two. Do, do do you have one in your drawer? Could could how do they, what do they smell like? <laughs> Are they hard? I mean, what this thing you study? It's got to be physical. You just told me that because if it's real, it's physical. What are the ways that you can hold and touch and smell and 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 taste it? Well, he looked at me like I was kind of an idiot, and uh, he said, "Well, they're 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 there on my whiteboard." He'd written, you know, the formula was up there, and I said, "Oh, so you you got to be really careful. Nobody comes in and erases that, because if that's if that's gone, you've got to find another field to study, right?" So no, it's written somewhere else, sort of flippantly. So I said, "Well, in theory." Every place in the world could erase this formula or mathematical objects, and uh, you'd have to go get a PhD in something else, right? And 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 he had to stop at that point, and he he didn't want to say it, but he had to say that no, even if it was not written anywhere, it would still be true that these mathematical formulas are 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 actual reflections of mathematical truths, and it, it opened the door a little bit for him. It opened his the conceptual space for him to start to realize that there's there, there's maybe more to this idea of immaterial objects existing than I've given credit to because yeah my whole field's based on properties namely mathematical objects and their relations to one another mm-hmm. and i've had similar conversations with, with law professors about justice yes. and with chemists about the periodic table whether it's objective or subjective whether it's actually nature's to the elements or not, and with foreign language professors about how do you translate accurately, and and so on and so forth. Hmm. So it really opens some doors to help folks who think all that exists is material realize, no, they're bumping into properties all the time. Mm-hmm. Let me build on something that Stan pointed out, because, I mean, he's pointing out real-life cases of where this is very practical stuff, and, I, and I've and i had similar cases myself. You raise the question of why would people deny this? And I think it's because of a certain set of reflections that lead to problems that people think are problematic. Here it is. I think, at least initially, it, it, it does seem pretty obvious that the apple that I'm looking at there is colored red and it's got a sweet taste and so on. And so it has a whole bunch of different properties that apples have. Okay, so now what I can begin to do is to reflect, well, suppose that I formed a set of all the red objects in the world 
and let's just specify that they were exactly the same shade of red. So we don't have to worry about variation. So, so we've got this large class of objects that are exactly the same shade of red. Now, over here is a banana, and it's not a member of that group. Well, why not? Well, the answer seems like it's kind of staring you at the face. It looks like all the things in our group literally share something in common. And the banana doesn't have what they share in common. Now, they don't share in common their location in space because the cherry's over there and the American flag's there and the apple's there and so on. They don't share size in common or shape or anything. What, what these objects share in common is that they're all red. That seems to be a, a, a property that they all literally have in common and that the banana is excluded because it fails to have that property. All right, well, now I've got this issue because it looks like there is this property of redness that could be in many different things at the same time. And so my head starts exploding a little bit because I'm used to thinking about just individual objects and they can only be in one place at one time, like a picture or a donut or what have you. Now, God is, a, is an exception. But uh, so most of the objects are, are spatially located at one and only one place. But now I'm believing in another kind of thing called a, a property or attribute that appears to be in some way in a whole bunch of things that are all over the world. And yet it appears to be the very same property, because I, I do want to say when I look at these, well, that color on this object is the very same shade of red as the color on that object. They're the same color. And if I take that seriously, then what I'm I'm beginning to do is I'm beginning to treat redness as what's called a universal. So now it's moved from being a property to being a property that is a universal and a universal is something that can be in many different things at the same time. And it might also be such that it could exist if nothing had it. I mean, maybe maybe triangularity, the property of being a triangle exists, even if there is actually no object that is a triangle perfectly. So now... I'm I'm gonna I'm starting to ask myself the question. Oh, okay, we've got these properties that can be in many things at the same time. That's a little weird, but exactly where are these? You know, where are these things? Uh, suppose nothing had them, and I begin to ask questions like, how long is the property of being red or or being wise? What is its shape? I mean, is it in the northern hemisphere or perhaps it's outside the milky way but, but where is it what's its shape and size and length well when you begin asking those questions they seem like they're kind of mistake category fallacies i don't know somehow i'm asking the wrong kind of question about these things mm -hmm. and so that leads you after reflection to saying well as stan pointed out these properties are not only universals but they're also abstract objects, meaning that while they are fully real, they are not located in space and time. Mm -hmm. 
they're completely spaceless and timeless. And so now I'm having to admit that I have a two-tiered universe, at least. I've got a, a physical universe where let's just grant everything is located somewhere in space and time. But now I'm believing in these sort of abstract entities like numbers and attributes that are outside of space and time. And somehow when something has it, it gets hooked up with it in some way. That's why people want to avoid these things. And there are other reasons because they think it's just weird for there to be these entities that are real that are outside space and time. And I think the Stan said naturalism plays heavily into that. And so that's where the problem gets generated. Stan, would you like to please add, because you know as much about this as I do. Well, I will push back on that. I certainly don't, but <laughs> but uh, I uh, absolutely think that naturalism is at the root of this historically. The, the, the movement toward reducing persons to bodies is also a part of it because we lose the mind and the mind is where we have these thoughts that are the representation of the proposition the you know the proposition is is what we're thinking about or uh, the soul is where the virtue of kindness resides and so as we've got a movement to reduce persons from bodies and souls to just bodies we see it lead to more and more questions raised about well then what room is there for anything like a universal to, to exist. Yes, that's right. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. Just to clarify a term here, I heard you use both the term physicalism and naturalism. Can you help me understand where those would be the same and where they'd be different? If you're strictly a physicalist, then you hold that everything that exists is physical and entirely physical. If you want to know what physical is, you, you know, it's whatever physics and chemistry ends up describing. And that's really all, all that exists. Now, uh, there are naturalists who fundamentally don't believe in anything supernatural. But secondly, in these days, most naturalists believe that science will be able to explain and identify everything that's real. And so since 
science is moving us towards a physicalist depiction of the real world than a naturalist who looks to science as his reason for being a naturalist would say that, therefore, I'm a physicalist of some kind. Now, some naturalists uh, are, are sort of weak naturalists. They will say when matter reaches a certain level of complexity, then all of a sudden, brand new emergent properties appear, like being a pain, the property of being a thought, or the property of being a desire. And so properties of consciousness are allowed to emerge from matter as long as you continue to assert that whatever emerges from matter and is non-physical is still dependent on matter for its existence. Let's call that weak naturalism. At least you've still got matter as your fundamental reality on which everything depends. But it's more consistent to be just a thoroughgoing physicalist. So naturalists can be physicalists or allow for emergent properties. Mm -hmm. And that's basically how that goes. Thanks, JP. Yeah. The analogy of the human person is so helpful. You know, the the physicalist says we are just a bundle of neurons. The naturalist says, well, there's something that, that they spark, you know, these thoughts, just like fire leads to smoke. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's just the matter that that is the real, real thing, uh, even though the naturalist allow these other things that sort of come from and ride upon the the fundamental reality of matter. Yes. So that's, that's a helpful way to think about it. Yes. So if you are committed to some kind of a naturalist worldview, you will be inclined to not believe in universals or, or abstract objects. And you would also have a hard time explaining how we could know these things if they did exist, because most naturalists hold to what's called a causal theory of knowing that in order for me to know something, it's necessary that I have some kind of physical interaction with that object. Like a sensory interaction? No. So, for example, for me to know that there is an object hanging on the wall will be for light waves to impinge on that object. Some of them are absorbed and others are reflected. And those light waves go through the atmosphere. They touch my rods and cones and they go down my optic nerve. And then they register a certain sparking activity in a certain region of the brain. Now, this may or may not give rise to an emergent sensation. Some are going to say, well, sensations are nothing but states of the brain. Others will say, no, sensations are, are different, but they depend on the brain for their coming to be. But notice that the important thing here is that I can't know that object unless this physical interaction occurs. That might not be all there is to knowing it. Maybe I would have to have a sensation that's caused by that interaction. But sensations don't just pop into being out of just thin air. They, they're caused by this physical story. So now, if an abstract object exists outside of space and time, they do not, and this is the view that's been held for centuries, they don't have causal powers. They can't cause things to happen. Now, if a particular thing has a property, 
then that may give that individual thing a new ability to cause something, okay? So if an electron has the property of being negatively charged, then that electron would have the power to attract a proton. But the property of negative charge itself doesn't cause anything. It's the electron in virtue of having that property that causes things. And so you would have trouble knowing something mm. that you couldn't causally interact with. There is also, and then I'll, I'll turn it back, but there's also theological problems with believing in these things because they appear to be necessary beings. That is to say, there is no possible world that God could have created where there isn't such a thing as being the number two or being triangular, even if he didn't make any triangles. Uh, and so they don't appear creatable. And the other problem is, if you say somehow God creates them, which I would say that he does so by sustaining them in existence, uh, you still have the problem, well, does God sustain his own properties in existence? So what do you do with God's properties? Because doesn't he have to have certain properties before he can sustain other properties in existence? But then you're, you seem inconsistent here. So, so those would be some of the puzzles that are, that are raised. Stan, you want to um, add anything? Thanks for uh, both that summary and raising some of the, of the objections. I think it's uh, it's important to address those objections because I know that those objections are getting some press, even in, um, in Christian circles. Yeah. And I, I think it's important we talk about those objections. Now, let me say something before we do, though, because I, I want to get really clear that, at least in my view, Scripture assumes universals. And if we give it up, we are going to have to give up at the end of the day things like the nature of salvation and knowing God and other very fundamental biblical doctrines and, and mandates. Now, there are those who would disagree with me. I could be wrong on this, but uh, let me just illustrate in a few ways some of what I think is at stake for us to be able to understand the view that there are universals and understand responses to the critiques that you've mentioned here. One I've already mentioned is that scripture is full of statements of fact of what seem to be propositions that are true, regardless of uh, what translation they're in or whose texts they're looking at. I heard you a long time ago give the example that when the pastor says, look with me at John 3.16, we all don't jump out of our seats and run up there and look at his Bible. We all know that he means look at the proposition contained in our Bible's ink on paper and his and uh, it's the same thing that John recorded when he first wrote the book and all through history as it's been translated. It's the same truth, the same proposition, same universal that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yeah. And so if we give up propositions, we're going to have a hard time making sense of this actually being God's revelation to us, that we can know what was in his mind and he's communicating to our mind through a text that ultimately, if you if you want to get rid of propositions, is only ink on paper. So you, you lose a whole lot there. Hmm. You also lose a lot of what 
Christ is in his incarnation. You know, he said clearly that I have come to take on human nature so that I can be a substitute and die in your place. Well, if there is no such thing as human nature, natures are other types of, of universals, if there's no such thing as a nature, then we've got real problems with what is it that Christ actually became if he didn't truly become a human in his deepest sense, in the sense of having a human nature, in what sense was he human, and therefore in what sense could he be a equal sacrifice for my sin? That's, that's huge. That's huge. So we've got to be very careful to think about this issue and really know what the fact of the matter is. So having said that, uh, you've raised a couple of the objections. Can you say a little bit about some of the ways you've wrestled through those and and would offer responses? Well, let's take the one about God not being able to create these universals, which are also abstract objects. I don't want to confuse those. Mm-hmm. The universal is multiply possessed by many things at once, but we find out that they're also outside of space and time on reflection. Okay, but so the reason they can't be brought into existence is because they're not spatial or temporal, in this case, realities. So what I've done, Stan, is I've drawn a distinction between being a supremely necessary being and being a strongly necessary being. A strongly necessary being is a being that exists throughout all possible worlds but is sustained in existence, and necessarily so, by God. God necessarily sustains these things in being. A supremely necessary being is a being that exists in all possible worlds, but does not have anything that sustains it in existence. So I say God is supremely necessary, and abstract objects like universals are strongly necessary. So there is a difference there. They are dependent on God, but God doesn't have the freedom not to sustain them. But now is that a problem? Uh, You know, God doesn't have the freedom to make himself not exist. He he doesn't have the freedom to create a square circle. Now, now when I say God doesn't have the freedom, I'm, I'm, I'm meaning things like this. He could not make it such that the property of being read is a taste instead of a color. He couldn't make the property being two and the property being three added together equal the property of being 17 and a half. Is that really a problem? Uh, I think that his sustaining these in existence necessarily are a reflection of his own being and the way his own mind works, although I don't think these are in his mind. Some might differ with me on that, and that's okay. Now, does he create them? Well, Aquinas noted that there was two different senses of creation, and one involves bringing something into existence at a point in time, and the other is sustaining it in being when it exists, and that is some kind of a form of creation in ontological dependency. So God creates the physical universe at the beginning of time. And he creates abstract objects by being their sustaining cause. So that's kind of my answer to that. Let, let, let me let me jump in here. Jump in. That's really helpful. I've found a different way to frame it that might be uh, just another window into this. Yeah. 
you mentioned the distinction Aquinas made, and I think that underlies the objection, namely the assumption that the only way something can cause something else is in a temporal sequence. So A causes B if and only if A exists and then causes B to come to B. Okay. Right. And that's usually when we look around what we see. So that's fair. That's reasonable. I get that. Mm -hmm. However, if universals exist, they didn't come to be, they're eternal, but that raises problems for God being the only one who has that property of being eternal and necessary. It's known as divine aseity, right? that he is the only one who just simply is. And so the question is, is there any way to conceive of two things that might coexist in time, but have a causal dependency? You mean outside of time? Well, I, I, I'm just saying inside of time, but they would apply outside of time as well. Oh, I see. I see. I'm sorry. Is there a thought experiment that might show that it's logically possible to have two things co-temporal in a sense of have the same duration? So one's not before the other, but one is still dependent on the other. Yes. And if that could be shown that it's logically possible and we can even in a thought experiment have a, an idea of what that would be like where something causes the other thing, even though they both exist for the same amount of time, then it it starts to give some reason to think, well, maybe God and, and universals could be co-eternal. They could both exist eternally, but universals are still dependent on God for their being or for their existence. And here's the thought experiment that that helps me. God could at any moment choose to create in my office here a couch with a bowling ball sitting on it, pop into existence right here. So we got three things. We got a couch, we got a bowling ball on the cushion, and we got a depression. Now, the fact of the matter is that the bowling ball is causing that depression in the cushion. Okay. So that's the cause and effect. Bowling ball pressure due to gravity causes the, causes the depression. However, they all pop into existence at the same moment. Right. So they're co- extensive in terms of time, but one is still ontologically prior or the cause of the other in terms of, if you will, order of being to use Aquinas's language. Well, that's the same idea that would be the response to this objection that, no, universals and God coexist eternally, but God has eternally been the cause of the effect, namely the universal. Now, do you think that works or is there some some things I'm missing, JP? I really love it. I think it does because what you have is a relationship between the bowling ball and that real shaped depression in that surface of the couch. You have a relation of, of ontological dependency, but not temporal priority in that dependency. The dependency is an ontological one. It's not earlier or later than. And I think that that's what you're getting at. That's exactly what I get. That it's logically possible to have ontological dependency without temporal priority. It is. Yeah. So in that case, you can have universals, Mm -hmm. be truly universal, and you can have the aseity of God. Right. Because these things are dependent on God, even though they exist necessarily, Mm -hmm. and he sustains them. The other issue I'll answer quickly and it's going to lead to a, a, a final lesson here that's really important. It's the objection that, well, I mean, you say God necessarily sustains all all these universals, properties. Well, that means he must sustain his own 
attributes, but how could he sustain his own attributes? That doesn't that make him ontologically prior to his nature and his attributes? And I, I agree. And so what I say is, as a brute fact, God simply finds himself having a range of attributes that he doesn't sustain. They're just a part of who he is. He exists necessarily as an attributed person or, or a triperson. So the other ones, however, like being red or triangular, he does sustain. Now, somebody might say, aren't you just uh, adding that stipulation to save your theory from falsification? My response is yes, I, I am doing that, but I'm justified for the following reason. If you do a cost-benefits analysis on what you lose if you give up universals versus what you gain in having them, the gain far outweighs the small negative impact that is against your view from having an ad hoc way of harmonizing this with God not sustaining his own attributes. Because, I mean, one of the things that you lose is truth. Because truth is either a property of propositions or it's a relation between propositions. Let's take logical truths, mathematical truths. And uh, in fact, some of the Christians who have gone the way of rejecting realism here and have become some version of nominalism have admitted that truth does not exist. They they use what's called the deflationary view of truth to say that snow is white is true is just to say snow is white. You, you, you're not saying anything else. Well, I, I, could, I disagree because when I say snow is white, I'm just making a statement about the snow. But when I say the, the assertion or the proposition that snow is white is true, I am making an assertion now, not about snow, but about that assertion. I have a different object I'm talking about, and I'm making a claim about it. I'm saying it comports to reality. Those are different claims. And so when I say the Bible is true, I am making a statement about the propositional content of the Bible is fixed by the language and saying that that comports with reality. So truth, if it exists, it's some kind of an abstract object, it would seem. So the bottom line here is that as Stan started this whole thing out, you lose a lot if you give up a realist view about universals insofar as they're abstract objects. And what you gain is very small compared to what you lose. And I think there are answers to what you allegedly gain. That's well said. For our listeners who want to go not just a little, but a lot deeper on this, uh, a, a good friend of mine and former student of yours, JP, has done, I think, the best work to respond to these nominalist responses or objections from a theological point of view. The author is Paul Gould, and uh, his book is Beyond the Control of God, Six Views in the Problem of God and Abstract Objects. It is a deep dive, but uh, you might hit his website. He's got some shorter articles on it as well. But I have not seen Christian nominalists respond to his uh, objections very well, if at all. So uh, there's a lot more on this that can be said. Yeah, I wanted to talk about what is nominalism. Well, there there are what you might call uh, extreme or austere nominalists who say that there aren't any such things as attributes at all. 
There just are no properties. So when I say the apple's red, what I'm really doing is saying something like, well, the word red truly applies to the apple or uh, something like that. There are other nominalists who say, you know what, I, I just cannot give up what I know to be true, namely that there are properties. But I'm not going to make them universals. I'm going to say that each apple has its own redness. So when I form the class of all red objects, I don't believe they all have something literally in common, which is the property of being red, because that would make it a universal. Instead, each object, the cherry, the fire truck, and the apple, and so on, each has its own redness. And all of these individual little rednesses exactly resemble each other. The reason the banana isn't in there is its particular yellowness, which is different from the yellowness of the banana next to it, that particular yellowness doesn't resemble any of the particular rednesses in the class that we formed. So they will allow there to be properties, but they won't allow them to be universals. They are particulars just like individual concrete things like apples and cherries and so on. Hmm. And so that's an attempt to try to have your cake and eat it too, I, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I think you did a great job uh, taking all of those ideas that are quite complex and articulating them in a couple books that you've co-authored at two levels I want to call out because people are listening to this and they they hopefully will want to read a little bit more. All right. And before they pick up your dissertation, which is uh, Universal's Qualities and Quality Instances, which is a, a, a tough read, uh, you wrote a little book with Gary DeWeese called um, Philosophy Made Slightly Less Difficult. Yes. And you've got a little section in there on this. It, it might be four or five pages that really summarizes this in a very helpful way. It's accessible. Yeah, it's accessible. And then the book you did with Bill Craig, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, you've got a chapter, which is a little more, it's probably 20, 25 pages on this, or it's actually, it actually deals with properties and substances. So I think maybe 15 pages or so on this, which unpacks a little bit more, not as much as your dissertation, but it, it does a little deeper dive. Yes. So if listeners want it to drill in, those are the two things I suggest uh, to, to take the next step. Those and the book edited by Paul Gould that you mentioned, those would be good introductions to this topic for people who want, you know, an introductory level to get, to learn a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. Good. And, you know, this is one of those cases of sometimes the most important things to think about are the things that don't have what we can immediately see as street value. Right. Sometimes there's just things like this you've got to think about. And then once you get your head around it, you start to see all the implications. That's right. But sometimes you just have to do the spade work to think about it. I I think about Paul writing Romans or other books of the Bible where, yeah, he spent most of his time doing theory. (laughs) And then he applies it, you know, Romans uh, uh, finally in 12. Therefore, based on the first 11 chapters, the theology, the theory uh, that he's unpacking, here's how it plays out. So this is another classic example of some of these things are pretty hard to get your head around. And you you might not see the real cash value of them for a little while while you're drilling in. But believe you me, 
uh, listeners, mm-hmm. it will come as you understand these issues. You'll start to see these issues everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, you're so right. Let, let me give you just one example of that. I am no longer tempted to believe that the universe of space, time, and matter is all there is. Mm-hmm. I know that there is a realm outside of space and time where mathematical objects, laws of logic, uh, and all kinds of abstract objects exist along with God. And I also don't believe that what I can know is limited to my five senses. There's a lot of things that I know about universals, especially those that are involved in logic and, and mathematics. We know some of those with greater certainty than we do any of the discoveries of science. Mm-hmm. But but we don't know them on the basis of any sense experience. They're grasped by an intuitive awareness of the mind. And so we have an ability to be aware of the unseen world beyond just experiencing God. And so those are two huge cash values for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another example of that, I think, is the grounding we get then in the objectivity of moral values yes if nominalism is true it's hard to make sense of objective moral values things that are true for all of us because they are essentially right or wrong yes yes and if you understand better a realist view of the world that there are universals there's space for moral values to be objective and transcending individuals and cultures Although they're not material things and they're not uh, particular things, they still can exist. You bet. I think that's a great example. Mm -hmm. It's also helpful when talking with non-believers, when reading a book that is by someone who wouldn't hold these beliefs, it's so helpful to be able to understand when they are talking about a kind of reality or a kind of relationship with real things, universals. Yes. I think we can unfortunately come to a kind of cheap consensus Ah. with some of those ideas when really it's built on fundamentally shaky ground. I think you're absolutely right. And that speaks to Stan's point about it, it really is worth working through some of these things, even if you don't know the immediate payoff, because once you kind of get a sense for it, you start seeing all these implications that are very relevant to day to day life and grounding what you believe. Just just take the idea of human nature. If there is no such thing as this common human nature, then it's very hard to make sense out of human rights Mm -hmm. because we're not equal. There's nothing about us that's equal. We're we're different in so many different ways. And so there's a payoff here that an anomalous is going to have a tough time making sense of of that doctrine. This has been such a helpful conversation to me personally, to hear these things, to hear these examples, and then to know where to go for more information. Really appreciate that from both of you, JP, for your writing, Stan, for your writing, and your explanations here have been so helpful. Thanks, guys. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plink, encouraging you to think Christianly.